Hi, it's Amy Siskin of The Weekly List and author of the book, The List, and welcome to episode 151 of The Weekly List Podcast. This is a 17th segment in a section called Democracy at Risk. Welcome. Well, it finally happened. Precisely 800 days after he left office, on March 30th, 2023, Trump was indicted. Trump once again is making history, becoming the first former president to be indicted of a crime. He was charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records, and prosecutors in the Manhattan DA's office are alleging that Trump sought to undermine the integrity of the 2016 election by hiding his extramarital affairs with Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal through a hush money payment scheme. The day of the indictment, I'm really struck with the reaction that people had. And this is something that we've talked about in a lot of these podcasts, how the whole experience with our near descent into authoritarianism had left many of us with a sort of PTSD. So even news that in concept, everyone should be welcoming, we've been calling for accountability from the get-go. Finally, we're about to get some accountability. And the day of, certain people had this certain sense of concern and malaise. There were some folks like me who were celebrating. I happen to believe that we are a country of laws. When you break laws, whether you were a former president or Joe Schmo on the street, you must be held accountable. That is the basis of our legal system. And however long it takes, in this case, it took a longer time. Whenever that accountability comes, it should be welcome. But then there were others who I, I believe are still living in this sort of fear of him, that he's this omnipotent figure and that anything that's happened to him will just enrage the country and he will rise up from the ashes and become president again. There's no evidence from the polling to suggest that that's the case. Maybe this helps him in the Republican Party. Certainly, it does not help him with independent voters or most Republicans who are walking away. Uh, but yet, it's sort of as if we're beaten down so much by this whole experience with authoritarianism that we live in fear of this man still. So leading up to this indictment, which I have to say, our media for weeks said it's going to be this day, and then it's going to be that day, and it's going to be this day. So we were all kind of excited. And then it was the old Lucy with the football getting pulled away. Oh, it didn't happen today. Oh, it didn't happen this day. But meanwhile, in the lead up to the indictment, Trump was attacking uh, the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, his staffers, the judge that was presiding over the case, the judge's family. He was doing so on Trump's social. He was doing so on radio and TV appearances. He was doing so at rallies, including a rally days before in all places in Waco, Texas. Uh, so when the indictment came on that Thursday, uh, I guess, you know, it, it came on a late Thursday. A lot of us were surprised that it actually dropped. We had were told that the jury was going to be off for spring break and things were going to be quiet. A lot of us had assumed that because this case, even though it's an indictment, it doesn't seem on its face as big of a potential indictment as what special counsel Jack Smith 
is investigating or what Georgia is investigating, some of us, myself included, thought that maybe Alvin Bragg was putting things into the slow lane to let Jack Smith pass uh, and come up with his indictments first. So we were all surprised when the indictment came about on Thursday. Trump was then given until the following Tuesday for his arraignment. In between that time, a poll was taken uh, by CNN, which found that nearly all Democrats supported the indictment. The opposite for Republicans, they were all nearly in opposition to the indictment, but importantly, the independents, uh, who are not aligned to either party necessarily, 62% of independents supported the indictment. So the country very much was for this. Nonetheless, the media coverage the day of the arraignment was all about how this this was going to be perceived as political. To prove their point and to further that narrative, they had on political pundits on many stations to talk about how this would impact the 2024 election. It became a feedback loop in this country of the media extolling how this was about politics and then having pundits explain the impact on politics round and round and round. The arraignment itself, uh, TV cameras were not allowed into the room. Actually, Trump's lawyers spoke against that or filed a, a brief against that, which is surprising because he likes to be the center of attention at all times. So all we were able to see were some photos uh, of him entering the courthouse in lower Manhattan. Of course, before he got there, we were treated to live shots of via helicopters showing the black cars, the black sedans and uh, SUVs heading down from Trump Tower to Manhattan's courthouse in lower Manhattan. Uh, Once he got there again, no one was allowed inside other than reporters who were not able to report live, a few of them. But then the photographs that came out showed a Trump uh, who looked for the first time out of control in terms of, you know, he looked humbled but angry, realizing that the judge at that moment was in control of what could be said. He was not, perhaps for the first time since he took the presidency. Uh, he came out, of course, he pleaded not guilty, came out, saw the, the, um, optics again of the cars going, the line of black cars, this time going to the airport where he flew back to Mar-a-Lago. Uh, that day of the arraignment in New York city, there were all sorts of threats because Trump had been encouraging violence openly, openly protests and violence that we might have a repeat of some sort of January 6th, but nothing like that happened. There were protests. There were also even more counter protesters. Uh, and the figures that came to speak for Trump were Marjorie Taylor Greene category, the few, the former QAnon person who has been mainstreamed by the Republican Party. Uh, but her speech was drowned out by boos and hisses, and she was escorted back to her car and drove away. But Trump flew back to Mar-a-Lago that night, and of course, our media complicitly like covered it in prime time, his rally, essentially a campaign rally. He rallied that night against Bragg and the judge even though during the day of the arraignment, he had been warned by the judge not to do so. 
Uh, but he said he never thought anything like this could happen in America. It's an insult to our country, is what he called it. So likely this case will go to trial in January 2024. Uh, again, it uh, is of the cases that we're about to talk about next, probably not, not the most significant case or indictment that Trump will face, but is, it is historically the first indictment, and we'll watch that play out over time. In terms of other charges up ahead, well, also, of a, this is a civil case, but also in New York on April 25th, Trump will be back to, for a deposition in the E. Jean Carroll case. Actually, there's two cases. The first is the case we covered in this podcast for defamation in 2019, where he had insulted her uh, when she had uh, alleged that he had raped her decades ago. So that case is for defamation. And then there's a second case that was filed in 2022 when New York opened a temporary one-year window to allow victims of past sexual assault to bring their old claims to court. So those cases are proceeding ahead. They're civil cases, but Trump will be back for a deposition later this month. The other case that we've been talking about, Georgia's Fulton County. Can you find me the 11,780 votes to Secretary of State Rothenberger? Uh, that is sort of a, a, a sleeping giant, we suspect, where that would be criminal charges against Trump for trying to influence the Georgia election. But reporting indicates this will not just be about Trump, that this will be about several of his allies potentially also could be indicted. And then the big daddy of them all, uh, special counsel Jack Smith. And we don't know exactly the timing or where things stand with the grand juries that um, have been convened. There are two matters that Jack Smith is pursuing. One is January 6th and Trump's role in that. And the second is Trump stowing classified documents at Mar-a-Lago and whether there was obstruction. There was major news that we have heard on the case of a possible obstruction in Mar-a-Lago, uh, where the judge in that case uh, is forcing, compelling Trump's attorney, Evan Corcoran, to testify before a federal grand jury about the potential mishandling of documents with classified markings. Uh, and that happened because despite attorney-client privilege, the in this particular case, the crime fraud exception was cited, which is a rarity. So that gives you a sense of the um, dire situation in, in that case for Trump. And as well, January 6, uh, Jack Smith has had much luck as, that we have seen reported in the news, getting people who are Trump allies, compelling them to testify. Secret service agents, both former and current, for the first time in history, have appeared before a D.C. grand jury and are continuing to do so. Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, Vice President Pence, uh, are both being compelled to testify. And numerous others, including uh, former DNI John Ratcliffe, the former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien, top aide Stephen Miller, Dan Scarvino, who was the, the former deputy chief of staff and social media director. And then other Trump aides, such as Nick Luna and John McEntee, 
uh, as well as former DHS official Ken Cuccinelli, who we also know are all being forced to comply with a subpoena from special counsel Jack Smith and testify. So we don't know the timing of that. We know that it's be moving along with great speed. Uh, there are rumors, again, that that could be as early as May, but we will stay tuned. That obviously will be the big enchilada. Separately, the other big 2020 election fraud-related news, election fraud in quotes, uh, a judge ruled last week that the Dominion Voting System's $1.6 billion defamation lawsuit against Fox News will proceed to trial. Fox had tried to stop that. Uh, and the judge rejected Fox's defense that the First Amendment protected its on-air, alleging that the election had been stolen. The case is the highest profile so far to test whether allies of Trump would be held accountable for spreading falsehoods about the 2020 election. We've seen hundreds of pages of internal emails and text messages between Fox News hosts and other staffers, some of whom now will be also testifying at trial, as will Rupert and Lachlan Murdoch, who own Fox News. They'll all be forced to testify. So we'll be staying tuned to that. And then beyond Trump and Fox News, um, part of what we've discussed in this podcast series is the nature of authoritarianism and how it's sort of like a virus of sorts. Not only does it color our thinking, but it also sort of embeds itself into all levels of our democracy, from federal, state, even local governments where I live. Our local Democrats try to extend their own terms without putting it out to vote. Uh, it's permeated all of our country, and it's, in my belief, part of what the importance of this project is, is to remind us of things not being normal, because unless we counter this stuff, they become the new normal. And sadly, that is sort of the vestige of Trump, even his four years, and what's happening on a global basis, which we're going to talk about at the end of this podcast. But we all have to be careful um, and, and stay on watch and be vigilant in calling this stuff out and not let it remain our new normal. Uh, that is, you know, the work of us all, even if things now, as compared to, I, I read back at times my first year or read pieces, articles I wrote during the four years of Trump, we were living in chaos. You'd wake up every morning, have to check your phone. During the day, there would be all sorts of crazy news that was unprecedented and frightening. And now we live in a time of calm. Uh, you know, there's still this malaise post the pandemic, post the years of Trump, but on a relative basis, things are calm. But we can't lose sight of these other kinds of things that we're about to discuss now that are still happening in our country in the light of day. I want to start off by discussing what happened in Tennessee this last week. I'll set the table by saying this happened after yet another incident of gun violence at our nation's schools, uh, where a Catholic school in Nashville, uh, there was a mass shooting yet again. Three young children, a substitute teacher, a janitor, and the head of the school were killed. Uh, the people there were mourning and outraged at the gun violence that continues in this country. As part of protests against gun violence, three Democrats who are part of the Tennessee Assembly 
joined a protest at their capital. And sometime after, a couple of weeks after, the Tennessee state legislature, which is predominantly Republicans, took a vote to expel two of the three Democrats who took, who are part of this protest, and a third escaped, but only by one vote. Notably, the two that were expelled are two black men, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. A white woman Democrat, Gloria Johnson, miraculously didn't get expelled. So if that isn't clear enough right in the light of day, I don't know what is about the racism alive in, in Tennessee. Uh, and just to put this into some historical context, uh, only three times in Tennessee history have lawmakers been expelled. Once was in 1866, immediately after the Civil War, for seeking to prevent the ratification of the 14th Amendment. And the more recent two times were both involved crimes or alleged crimes. One was a sitting lawmaker who was convicted of soliciting a bribe. And the other was a House Majority Whip who faced allegations of sexual misconduct. So those are the kind of things that usually get members expelled in Tennessee and elsewhere. So this shows you how thoroughly undemocratic this process was. Another aspect of authoritarianism that we spoke about during this project was stuffing the executive branch with extremists and how in authoritarians they tend to undermine trust in the judicial system by staffing it with extremists. On Friday evening, this last Friday, uh, right before the Easter holiday weekend, late Friday, a federal district court judge appointed by Trump outlawed the use of mephiprostone, which is used by half, in over half of the abortions in this country. In doing so, he overrode a federal agency, striking down the FDA's 23-year-old decision that the drug is safe and effective, and came up with a bunch of nonsense to refute it. He, having no actual medical background, uh, overruled, again, something that has been in place for 23 years and safe and effective. His ruling, also as a federal judge, effectively made it illegal to use the abortion pill across the country. The whole thing, just as background, is rather sinister as well. The umbrella organization that led this case, which is known as the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, uh, incorporated itself in Amarillo, Texas, where this judge, this Trump-appointed judge, um, was domiciled. They did so just weeks after Dobbs, which basically overturned Roe v. Wade. This is the second biggest case outside of Dobbs. He's the only judge in that jurisdiction, so they knew that they would get him. Later that evening, and again, a lot of people had already left for vacation. It's a vacation week. People are leaving for the holidays. We just had Passover. It's Ramadan and Easter this weekend. So a lot of people weren't paying attention to the gravity of what happened. And then later that evening, a federal district judge in Washington state issued an order prohibiting the FDA from taking any steps to alter the status quo with respect to this abortion pill. But their lawsuit was only relating to about a dozen states, which are largely blue states and the District of Columbia. So it's unclear what happens next with the basic you know, pr idea that women can control their own body. 
here we, we went 50 years backwards with Dobbs, and now we're going 23 years backwards with this ruling, potentially. And again, this is another aspect of authoritarianism, the extremism of the judges, but also control of women uh, and marginalized communities. And I'm shocked that we live in a country that this is even possible, but here we are. And Republicans just don't seem to get the message uh, here. Just this last week, uh, last Tuesday, Wisconsin held what was heralded to be the most important election of this year for an open Supreme Court seat that uh, basically would determine in the seven-seat Supreme Court in that state a lot of matters, including abortion. And the main issue became abortion rights and whether abortion rights would be struck down in this country. You'll recall that Trump actually won Wisconsin in 2016. It's considered a very close swing state. Well, the Democratic candidate won by 11 points. So it shows you that despite these authoritarian type tactics, does not match up with what the American people are asking for or wanting. Finally, I just wanted to talk about globally what's happening. And uh, we've talked about Putin's cruel invasion of Ukraine, which is continuing and being supported uh, in, or at least not spoken out against by other authoritarians like China Xi. Uh, there's a lot of ra saber rattling with China against Taiwan. But the other big thing I wanted to point out that has happened that also brings up a lot of fright about Trump is in Israel, Netanyahu has returned to power. Uh, he is uh, similar to Trump, <laughs> out of power. Uh, Netanyahu is subject to his own legal charges that he is facing. And he, in recent weeks, has moved to limit the Israeli Supreme Court's power to rule against the legislature and the exact against the legislature and executive branch, including by allowing the Knesset to override the Supreme Court's decisions with a simple majority of votes. He's met with opposition of that. Uh, in reaction, initially, he had fired his own defense minister and later has put that on hold. But there's been rallies and protests all over Israel, similar to the protests we saw uh, in our country when Trump took office. And there was these very, very frightening elements of authoritarianism. So the fight continues globally. And uh, I just, you know, again, it goes back to the theme that we've discussing throughout, which is this authoritarianism that is, is now part of the ethos in which we live of our time and how important it is that we all stay vigilant. Uh, a number of you have reached out to me after events this week, especially that we talked about in this podcast, to ask if I would consider resurrecting the weekly list and keeping track. And to tell you the truth, there's just not enough content during the Trump era. We forget what it was like. I encourage you to read back, read my book, uh, look at some of the lists to understand what we lived through at that time. Things in a relative sense in this country are much more calm now, and there isn't a need for the weekly list. But we will continue these podcasts to highlight the important elements that are happening after Trump left office. Uh, they will also be part of the archive at the University of Pennsylvania's Annenberg School, where the lists and the podcasts and artifacts and write-ups and pictures of events around this time, of around the era of Trump, 
are, are also archived. If you are in Philadelphia and want to stop off and read the stories or check out the archive, feel free to do so at the Annenberg School. So with that, uh, stay vigilant uh, as, as future indictments unfold. And as we know more, you'll be hearing from me again. Enjoy your spring. <laughs>